the latter portion of the book of Isaiah predicts a coming glorious mighty deliverance for this exiled nation of Israel and that deliverance is viewed in Isaiah as an unveiling of the power of the Lord the power of God in all of its splendor it's going to be a stretching forth of the arm of the Lord for the sovereign mighty liberation of his people and in our text this morning which is Isaiah 53 it's the fourth and, and final passage in Isaiah where he speaks of this mysterious figure known simply as the servant in this text the mighty arm of the Lord is finally and shockingly revealed and the New Testament places beyond all doubt just who the figure of this text is this passage is cited seven times in the New Testament Jesus applies this passage to his own work Philip applies this text uses it and preaches the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch Peter explains the nature of Christian suffering from this passage and so this is a text Isaiah 53 which takes us to the very heart of the gospel it looks the the German 19th century German Old Testament scholar Franz Delich uh, said the text looks as if it were written beneath the cross at Golgotha it is he continued the most central the deepest and the loftiest thing Old Testament prophecy outstripping itself has ever achieved it's been called the Mount Everest of Old Testament prophecy and so we come here to the central mystery and the central scandal both the central horror and the central glory of the faith we come here to the terrible dreadful goodness of the atonement and this this beloved is why we are Christians this is the ground of all of your gratitude this is the source of all of our praise and this alone is the foundation of all of our hope and as such a reverent look at this text should be it should be a kind of recentering and refocusing for us here is a text where we can take everything that we value and reevaluate it so that we estimate things aright this is a text that reminds us that the gospel is not simply information or simply propositions here you are to have your affections captured and the love of this God revealed in this text kindled afresh because there's nothing less than the inexhaustible the infinite 
fountain of the love of God toward you, which is on display here in this text, in the servant who is the mighty arm of the Lord. And so I want to look at the text this morning under three headings. Three headings. I'm just going to make three main points. The first one is um, human observation. The second is divine reality. And the third is reward. Human observation, divine reality, and reward. So first, then, human observation. The appearance of the servant on the horizon is so astonishing that it prompts the prophet to ask two questions at the beginning of Isaiah 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now the point of these questions is simply that the message of the servant, the arm of the Lord, is so unexpected, so counterintuitive, and such a stumbling block to the Jewish nation that apart from divine grace, divine revelation, no one would ever believe it. It's an unbelievable message. And thus verses 2 and 3 in the text are about the limitations of merely human observation. In verse 2, we can see that his birth, his family tree, his background, it's unimpressive. He has no pedigree to speak of. He was like a young plant, like a root out of a barren ground. Nothing particularly special about him. As we heard in the gospel lesson, is this not the carpenter's son? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Not only does he have no pedigree, his appearance is unimpressive. He has no form, the text says, or majesty or comeliness that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. He's not particularly handsome. He's not a commanding presence. He's not one of the pretty people. If you have a picture of Jesus and the 12 disciples, you would not be able to tell which one was Jesus. There's no glow around him. He's a typical, poor, Palestinian, Jewish peasant. You cannot find him in these Hudson Valley VIP magazines. And, and if you look at his personal history, it's not just unimpressive, it's just plain sad. It's almost repulsive from a purely human vantage point. The text says he was despised. And he was rejected by men. He's a reject. He has no followers to speak of. He's full of sorrow and grief. He's a man of woe. The guy seems excessively grim, weighed down. He should tell a few more jokes, maybe. He's not exactly jocular. So he's shunned, the text says, as one from whom men actually hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Even his family thought he was mad. 
And so the servant here is being envisioned prophetically as a social non-entity, a zero. That is all that human observation could deduce about Jesus of Nazareth. Surely this one could not be the arm of the Lord. Who would believe a report that made such a claim? That's the prophet's astonishment at the beginning of Isaiah 53. The report of this one, as the servant, as the arm of the Lord, is on the face of it preposterous. But the divine reality, our second point, it comes into view in verse 4. I'm sure you've heard, because I know Pastor Vance mentions it, I, I mention it myself when it's appropriate, that Martin Luther has this wonderful statement where he says the gospel comes to us in the pronouns of the Bible. The gospel comes to us in the pronouns of the Bible. And no place is this more evident than in verses 4 through 6 of the text. There's a sustained contrast here in these verses between he and his and him on the one hand and us and we and our on the other. These words are used just in these three verses set over against one another some 18 times. And this means that this servant takes our place. He is our substitute. He dies for our sins, which is why this text takes us to the heart of the gospel. You'll notice in this text there's still a bit of this contrast between human observation and divine reality visible here. In verse 4, the text says, Though he was carrying our griefs and sorrows, yet we judged, we esteemed him to be stricken and smitten by God. The natural man sees no substitution here. The servant dies a criminal's death. He dies the vile death of crucifixion, reserved for insurrectionists and enemies of the state. God must be displeased with him. The natural man says God must be smiting him. After all, the sacred scriptures themselves say, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So to a passerby, this looks just like another in a long line of Roman executions. Now, of course, ironically, this is half true. Jesus was smitten by God. But it was not on account of his own sins. Verse 9 makes it clear in the text that he'd done no violence. There's no deceit in his mouth. Verse 12 says, the Lord's servant is the righteous one. And so the little word... But, in verse 5, brings us back to the divine interpretation that verse 4 started with. Surely, he was a man of sorrows, smitten and afflicted by God. But, contrary to human observation, the sorrows and sins were not his own, they were ours. He was wounded for our transgressions. Notice the language of what you and I contribute to this scene in these verses. Here's what you and I bring to the 
wonderful exchange to the substitution. Griefs, sorrows, transgressions, iniquities, turning to our own way. It is our sins which create this spectacle in this text. We all, every one of us, Luther said, we all walk around with his nails in our pockets. And next, take note here of the weight, the dreadful agony of this exchange, this substitution. Again, listen to the language of the text about what the servant willingly undergoes for you, in your place. We get words like this. Born. Carried. Stricken. Smitten. Afflicted. Pierced. Crushed. Chastisement. Wounds. Laid upon. This is total substitution from within our condition. So that when we gaze on the cross, Calvin says, we are gazing upon what is our due. And yet, we must say more. We must say more than that Jesus dies for us. And we must say more than that it is our sins that put him on the cross. We must say, as was said half in error in verse 4, we must say that he was smitten and afflicted by God the Father. Look at verse 6, verse 6 of the text. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now this is a well-known text but it actually contains an astonishing insight into the mystery of the servant's suffering. The Lord God is acting here like the high priest on the Day of Atonement, and he is laying the iniquities of us all on the head of the scapegoat, which is his son, so that it is God himself, God himself places the burden and the guilt of our sins on the head of his own son, and that sacred head, freely given, is now wounded for our sins by the hand of his Father. More graphically than this even, verse 10 says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. To crush him. He has put him to grief. So, who killed Jesus? God the Father killed him. He was the high priest who took your sin and laid it on the servant's sacred head. And as that priest, he does what Abraham was on the precipice of doing. He slits his own son's throat. More than that, it was the Father's will, the Father's will 
to crush him, to crush him for us. The end of chapter 52, just before our text, says of the servant that many were astonished of him because his appearance was so marred, marred beyond human semblance. His form was marred, the text says, beyond the appearance of the children of mankind. And so we must penetrate more deeply into this terrible, dreadful mystery. It was the Father's will to crush him, to disfigure him, to mar him, to mangle him even beyond human recognition on the cross for you. He crushed him. He put him to grief. The incomprehensible grief of that cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Three times, three times, the son asks for that cup to pass, and three times, the father says, no. Now here, on this ground, we must be careful. The father does this not because he's a sadist or because, like the pagan deities, he can be placated by human sacrifice. He does this precisely, indeed shockingly, because this is what we mean, or at least this is what we should mean, when we say God is love. It's the love of God which provides this sacrifice. Indeed, in the person of His Son, utterly one with the Father, the love of God is this sacrifice. So please don't get this backwards. The Father's love is revealed in the cross. It is not created by the cross or earned by the cross. It does not come into existence at the cross. It's manifested at the cross. The love of God precedes the crushing of the Son, the disfiguring of the Son, and the marring of the Son. The love of God manifests itself in this unexpected way and at this unexpected place. And so I want to suggest that we ought to reword for ourselves a couple of familiar texts from the Apostle John. They should go something like this. God so loved the world that he crushed and disfigured his only son. Or, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and crushed his son. Crushed his son as the propitiation for our sins. The cross means, beloved, that God loves us more than he loves himself. Or if that seems too bold, we must at least say that what the Father does here to his beloved Son, and what the Son willingly and freely undertakes for our sake, indicates that the infinite love 
between the Father and the Son so yearns for your inclusion in its communion that it undergoes this spectacle. And this spectacle should force a reevaluation of three simple things. A reevaluation of three simple things. First, we can, as, as the hymn we sang today says, estimate sin and guilt aright. Ye who think of sin but lightly, you don't think that the guilt is that great, you need to come here and recalibrate your estimation of the nature of sin, for it is in our natures to perpetually minimize it and excuse it. Second, we can estimate the holy wrath of God and his fury against sin aright, for we are always minimizing that. And having done that, we can estimate the infinite love of God for sinners in the crushing or the smiting of His Son. And if that infinite love does not capture your affections here, then frankly, you're in some sort of spiritual peril. Finally, I want to look at the reward. Verse 10, the servant's reward. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. Since he was cut off out of the land of the living and buried in verses 8 and 9, this is nothing less in verse 10 than a prophecy of the resurrection. And the end of verse 10 says, the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Please get this. The same will that crushed him will now hold sway over heaven and earth in his risen hands. And verse 11 says that he will see the anguish of his soul and he will be satisfied. Right? This is no potential redemption. This is a mighty act of liberation. It wins a redeemed people. The servant shall see the results of his passion, the, the crushing agony, and he shall be fully satisfied. And the end of verse 11 says that he will justify many. This execution, this crushing, is the ground of your justification, your free and full acquittal, which is why this is the ground of all your hope. And finally, at the, at the end of the text in verse 12, we're told that he'll be allotted a portion with the great. He'll divide the spoil up with the strong. This is a, uh, a parallel text to Psalm 2, which speaks of him, the risen Christ, receiving the nations as his inheritance. Chapter 52, after speaking about his being marred and disfigured, says that the servant shall then sprinkle, wash many nations. And the text concludes by driving us back to the reason for the son's reward, for his exaltation. It tells us he shall receive this spoil because he poured his soul out unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many. He made intercession for, for you and I, for the transgressors. This is the servant of the Lord. 
This is the mighty arm, the mighty arm of the God of Israel. Jesus Christ crucified for your sins. And this, beloved, is why we are Christians. Let us boast, as Paul says, in nothing save him and his cross. Worthy is the Lamb who was crushed. Amen.